kind of help you uh, move into the sermon a little bit. What is the moment for you when everything changed? What is, what is the moment, what is the reality in your life that gives shape and color to everything else? And if you've lived long enough, uh, you probably have several of these, right? Several of these life-changing moments where something happens and everything in your world changes and the way that you see everything in your world changes. The birth of a child, a new job, graduation, the loss of a spouse, some chronic illness. It can be good, they can be bad. But they shape everything that we see, everything that we experience. And in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is helping us to do is to see how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus change everything. How that, that gospel, that good news, changes the way we see everything else. The way we do everything else, the way we feel, the way we think. If you are in Christ, then nothing is the same as it ever was. And at the heart of this good news is an executed king. At the heart of this good news is a crucified savior, which is, which is totally crazy. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. It runs completely opposite to everything that we think about the way the world should work and the way that we gain success. At the heart of the Christian faith is an executed Savior who wins his people by dying. And, if that wasn't crazy enough, everyone who follows him, he invites to do the same. He invites us into this crazy-sounding life where to actually give up, to sacrifice, is the way to victory. That the way down is the way up. Totally crazy. But that's exactly what Paul is going through here in this letter, in particular in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. I began last week's sermon with this quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. He wrote these words in 1835. He said this, Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free. But nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. Well, in the gospel, Jesus teaches us how to use our freedom. And that's what Paul is going to show us here in 1 Corinthians 9. So if you would, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from the pew rack in front of you. Page 956 is where we'll start. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 27. Let's give attention to God's word. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Yes, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, in your great mercy, would you help us to understand what it is you are telling us here? We want to live, Lord, with 
the reckless abandon that Paul speaks of, to give our lives maybe for something great. Would you anchor us, Lord? Would you help us to anchor our hopes in you and in the grace of your gospel? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began looking at this principle last week, this idea that the gospel gives us freedom, but we need to define what that freedom means. And God has not set us free to amuse ourselves at the expense of others. Rather, God has set us free so that we can love and serve one another. That's chapter 8. That was his message in chapter 8. And here in chapter 9, Paul now gives himself as an example. Right? An example of what it means to be free to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. Now, you'll notice in that passage as I read through it, that word right came up a lot. What I, what I have is a right. What is my right? And we are keen and in many cases ought to be keen on what our rights are. We love our rights. We dare defend our rights. We do not want to lose our rights. And so it's interesting that Jesus um, gives us this situation where we might actually be able to lay down our rights for the good of someone else. We're going to talk about what that means. So the first thing we want to see is what freedom gets. What freedom, then we want to see what freedom gives. And finally, how freedom runs. If nothing is harder to use than freedom, then we want to learn how to use our freedom. This wonderful thing called freedom. So, What is it that freedom gets? What is it that freedom gives? And how does freedom run? Paul begins uh, by saying, am I not free? Now let's stop there for just a minute because for many of us, maybe for many of you, the, the idea of freedom and Christianity are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Right? That really anything to do with religion is just a stern list of things I am not free to do, right? If anything, Christianity tells me or religion tells me, no, you do not do this. You are not free here, right? And all of the things that I can do, they're, they're then a list of things that I should do. And so many of us maybe in our past or the way we grew up or even still kind of break down Christianity into those two camps, right? What are the list of my do nots? And what are the list of my dues? And of course it works out that all of the things that I'm not allowed to do are all of the fun things. And all the things that I'm supposed to do are, make me totally miserable. Right? That's, so the idea of freedom and Christianity seem to be on opposite poles with each other. Right? In our, in our minds, uh, religion represents not freedom, but shackles. So how can Paul say, Am I not free? We've, we've turned Christianity into that song we sing about Santa Claus, right? Uh, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. That's terrifying. Uh, he knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Is that the way that you perceive Jesus? That if I am to be good, it is for goodness sake, and he is just simply waiting, right? He's, I'm already on the good list. And he's just waiting for one slip up. He's even watching me while I sleep, the creeper, right? And just waiting for one slip up and he's going to move me over here to the naughty list. Is that, is that how you view, 
uh, Christianity? Is that how you view the gospel? What exactly is freeing about Christianity? What is freedom? Let's talk about that. First, if you are in Jesus, freedom means you are free from having to earn God's approval. So it is the exact opposite of the Santa Claus song, right? Every uh, sad little boy and girl knows what it means to be in constant terror of Santa Claus and whether or not he's going to be mad at you and you're not going to get what you want, which oddly enough, everybody still seems to get what they want. Um, hmm. We are free. So unlike Santa Claus, in Christianity, we are free from having to earn God's approval. Why? Because if Jesus has kept God's law for you, which he has, then you do not have to keep the law to earn your place before God. You do not have to keep the law to keep your place before God. You do not have to be good to earn God's approval. You do not have to be good to earn God's approval. Jesus has done that for you. If your upbringing was anything like mine, I I grew up in church and at one point left church. But my understanding of Christianity came to be that if I, that if, as long as I pray the prayer and accept Jesus, then he breaks me even, right? He takes care of all the stuff in my past. And now it's up to me to remain good. Right? To keep my nose clean and do what I can so that God will smile on me. Friend, that is not the gospel. Gospel Christianity says that Jesus has done the work necessary to clean your past, your present, and your future. It is not up to you to retain your place before God. Jesus has done that for you. If Jesus has sacrificed himself for you, then your debt is paid. There's nothing more you can earn from God. All of God's riches and favor are already yours in Jesus. So there's nothing to lose and there's nothing to gain. That's freedom. There's nothing to lose before God and there's nothing more to gain from God. God cannot love you any less and God cannot love you any more than He already does. That's freedom. Nothing to lose, nothing to gain. But if we're free from having to earn God's approval, we're also free from having to earn man's approval. Being in Christ means that He sets the tone for my life. And that if I belong to Jesus, that my family and my culture do not set the tone for me. Now, parent, uh, children, I'm not telling you to rebel against your parents, okay? What I am saying is this. If I belong to Jesus, then He is the one who sets the drumbeat for my life, and I do not have to march to anyone else's but His. And hopefully that means Christian parents, church leaders, etc. But what it does mean, that if I, have, if I don't have to earn man's approval, then I have nothing to prove. Because of Christ, I have nothing to prove and I have nothing to fear. So let's put all those together. What does freedom in Jesus mean? If I'm in Christ, 
then I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to fear, and nothing to prove. That's freedom. That's real freedom. Not simply freedom uh, disguised as something else. That's real, true freedom earned for us, given to us in Jesus. Now, not everyone in Corinth had grasped that freedom. They didn't really fully get it. Most of the people in Corinth would have come out of a pagan background. What that means is they worshipped any number of gods and goddesses at different temples around, around, uh, around the city. And for some of them, that reality was still too close. It was still too real. And so to, to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol, which was a very real possibility in a city like Corinth where everybody worshipped something, to eat food sacrificed to an idol, they were worried that that would condemn them before God. And so Paul calls these brothers and sisters weaker brothers and sisters, right? Their consciences have not really uh, been liberated yet. They're still afraid. They're still, right? They haven't, they haven't fully grasped that idea of nothing to gain and nothing to lose. They still felt like there was something to lose. Now they're still in Jesus. They're safe. They're free. They just don't know it yet. But there were others in Corinth that did grasp their freedom. They understood that an idol is nothing. That food sacrificed to an idol is really just that, food. And that I'm free to eat. They got that. And as far as they got that, they were correct. But Paul says what they did not get was how to treat their weaker brothers and sisters. They were using their freedom, they were using their knowledge, which was right, to abuse their weaker brothers and sisters. And Paul says, that is not right. Paul says, it is a real possibility that your good theology can destroy someone else, if not used in love. So they had good theology, they understood their freedom, they understood that an idol was nothing and that there's only one true God, but the way that they lived it before their fellow Christians put a stumbling block at their feet. It tripped them up. And so Paul uses himself as an example to say, how do we practice freedom in a more loving way? I know you've got freedom, you've got liberty, but how do we live it in a way that actually helps others, that fulfills the command of love rather than trips others up? Paul gives himself as an example. And what's what he does for most of this passage? He elaborates on his right, his right as an apostle, his right as a preacher. And his right is that he be paid for his work. Now, what Paul is doing really in the first 14 verses of this chapter is just trying to set up, yes, I am a true apostle, yes, I do have this authority, and yes, I do have this right. Okay? Now, that may seem very foreign to us. We'll try to pick a few things out. We see that this was a common practice for the other apostles. And so what would happen, just to kind of give you a window into the first century church, is these early leaders, these church founders called apostles, would travel around the Mediterranean Sea, planting and strengthening the churches. And it's apparent that as the other apostles did this, as other leaders did it, that the churches supported them, right? They got their food and drink. When Paul says... Um, do we not have the right to eat and drink in verse 4? He means, do we not have the right for you to supply us with food and, food and drink? 
Because that what was that's what was common, right? These traveling church leaders would be supported by their churches. And Paul says, that's my right. We have a right to do that. He doesn't say that's a bad practice. He actually says it is a good practice. And he uses several examples from the world to show it. Right? The, the guy who works in the vineyard, he gets to drink the wine. The guy who works with the herds, he gets to drink the milk. The guy who works in the field gets to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Shouldn't we, working spiritual things among you, get to enjoy some physical benefit from that, some material benefit? It is a good thing and it is a right thing. And what this means, just kind of as an aside, is it is a good and right thing to support gospel ministry. In fact, I would argue you should support gospel ministry before you support anything else. Now, I realize that seems a little bit self-serving uh, because my paycheck, my the food in my refrigerator comes from your support, right? Comes from our gifts. But Paul right here shows us that right just as the ox was not to be muzzled as he treaded out the grain, so the preacher could get his living from the gospel work, from his gospel preaching. And the reason that I argue you should support gospel work is that it's the only thing that really counts eternally. I'm sure that the Humane Society is a great service to the community, but it will not last eternally. The church will last eternally. And it is worthy of our support, as Paul says here. And yet, Paul says, I'm not making use of that right. Paul says, it is right and good that you should support preachers, but I'm laying that right down. Now, I'm not where Paul is at this point in my life. But here's what Paul did. For many of the places where he went... He chose not to take money from the church, but to make tents. And in the ancient world, that meant uh, skinning, stretching leather, staining leather, right? It was hard work. It was sweaty work. It was smelly work. Odds are his hands were stained with the dye that they used to make tents. But Paul said, I would rather do that than take money from you. Now, why does Paul do that? He doesn't really fully explain. It's possible, for instance, in the ancient world, traveling philosophers and teachers, they would often be paid. And what that would mean is that if you paid that teacher, you kind of owned that teacher, right? They would say what you wanted them to say. So Paul wants the freedom to be able to preach the gospel whether you support him or not, right? Or it's possible that Paul didn't want to lay a burden on these early churches that might have limited financial means. That if he could get his support, if he could make his living from somewhere else, he did not want to hinder the spread of the gospel. Right? So Paul lays down his right to being paid for the sake of the gospel. And that's really the point of this whole passage. That we lay down, we can lay down what is rightfully ours for the sake of the gospel. And I can say that if you can come up with some other scheme, if somebody in here is independently wealthy and just wants to bankroll a pastor, uh, if there's a way that I can continue to do what I love to do and yet free up more money from our church budget 
so that we can do more ministry, I'd love to do it. I'm, I'm with Paul in that regard. I just don't have another skill. So, Paul made tents. I got nothing. Um, that's a failure of education system. That's another sermon. So, um, Paul lays down his right. right. So we have what freedom gets and then we have what freedom gives. Paul says, I would rather boast. I would rather work, even boast in the fact that I'm able to preach the gospel without pay. Here's what Paul is basically saying. When I owe you nothing, I can give you everything. When I owe you nothing, I can give you everything. Look again at gospel freedom and let's think about its implications. If Jesus owns me and He is infinitely good, then I've already gotten all that I, all that I need and more. In fact, He hasn't given me what I deserve, which is death. He's given me life instead. I have more than I deserve in Jesus. Which means I don't have to extort you for anything. I don't have to take anything from you. I don't have to expect anything from you. If Jesus loves me, and He accepts me completely, then I don't have to extort my happiness or satisfaction from any person. I have full acceptance in Jesus. I don't have to be mad. I don't have to be bitter. I don't have to be entitled, right? Instead, I'm free. Because Jesus owns me completely and loves me completely, I'm free to give everything. My friend Jeff recently posted something on Facebook that I thought was brilliant. And I don't know if, it came, if it's originally his. But it's a, he said, Everything that can be lost will be lost. Everything that can be lost will be lost. My wealth, my health, my spouse, my job, everything that can be lost will be lost. So can we labor then for that which will not be lost? Can we give ourselves generously to that which will never perish? That's what Paul is calling us to. Lay down some of those things that really will, won't, won't matter in the long run. Lay them down for the sake of the gospel. Look at how he works this out practically. Verse 19. He says, Though I am free from all, right? nobody has claims on me because I belong to Jesus, so I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all. Paul willingly subjects himself to servitude. Why? That I might win more of them. What does he mean? Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew to win Jews. Paul, by the way, was a Jewish man. He understood Jewish law very well. He kept Jewish law very well. But when he came to Christ, he understood that the food laws, circumcision, all of those things did not constrain him, did not shackle him anymore. And yet Paul says, when I am with those people who are still under the law, I act like one under the law. I understand what my freedom is. I'm saying I can lay it down. If, if they're going to struggle with the fact that I'm eating bacon, I won't eat bacon. 
I will, I will live as a Jew to win Jews. I will gladly give up that freedom that I know I have to win uh, Jews. Then in verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, literally without law. Who's he talking about? Gentiles. People who did not have the law of God. To those without the law, I became as one without the law. Now, he clarifies. He says, not, not that I stand outside the law of God, right? Paul doesn't say, hey, listen, in order to win prostitutes, I'm going to become a prostitute. That's not, Paul is not compromising his morals to win those who do not have God's law. But he is saying, I can, I can mirror the life of these Gentiles so that I can win them. Paul's not compromising his morals, but he is saying, I don't have to, as a Jewish man, I don't have to keep Jewish law around my Gentile neighbors. I can eat bacon at their table because they're okay with it. And if Jesus is okay with it, I'm okay with it. Paul is able to live in both worlds. He's able to lay his freedom down and pick it up. And you know what? There may be some area over here that would give unnecessary offense. Paul would be free to do it, but he doesn't do it because he's with those, he's with those without the law, right? He doesn't make Jew, Jewishness a big deal with the Gentiles, and he doesn't make Gentileness a big deal with the Jews. He says, I'll live in both worlds so that I might win more. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Paul's great desire is not that he be right. Paul's great desire is not to impress anyone. Paul's great desire is to see more and more people gathered around Jesus' table. And so he will use his liberty in a loving way as necessary. He will not stand on his rights. He will not stand... even. He is willing to endure hard work during the night hours, staining his hands with cow's blood and dye, so that in the morning he can preach the gospel. Are we willing as Paul was willing? What freedom gets, what freedom gives, how freedom runs. Paul says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Corinthians, uh, they had a game, uh, a series of games close by. You're familiar with the Olympics. Uh, there was another set of games called the Isthmian Games. Try to say the word Isthmian five times fast. Don't do it right now. But in the Isthmian Games, they were like a smaller version of the Olympic Games. You had running, you had wrestling, you had boxing, right? So these people knew about athletic competition. What's, why does Paul bring that in? What point is he making? He's saying that if you want to be a competitor, that means you've got to give some things up, right? Self-denial is part of winning a race. If you have ever run... Um, you know how uncomfortable running becomes after, you know, three steps, right? You're, 
there's actually this thing, no joke, scientifically proven, I couldn't tell you where, uh, but there's actually this thing within your body, when you are physically exerting yourself, your body actually tries to stop you. Like you, there is, and, and I forget what it's called, but there's basically a, a, a feeling, a switch in your mind that says, hey, really, time to stop. This is not good. The heart rate is raised. You need to slow down, right? And every athlete, what they are doing is pushing that further, right? It's why you train. It's why you test muscles because you want to, you want to push that sense of exhaustion out further and further. In order to do that, you have to give certain things up. For one, the desire to stop, right? You have to push through the soreness in your legs. When your muscles are screaming at you that you're really, that you really are about to die, you have to tell your brain, I'm not about to die. It's going to be okay, right? It's a fine line in there somewhere, but that's what, that's all Paul is saying. That in order, that in order to run well, there are going to be things you have to give up, right? I desire to eat fried chicken every day. And you could probably argue that is my right. And yet, if I want to maintain a certain waistline and health level, I'm probably going to need to give that up. I want to give up that right to eat fried chicken every day. That's all Paul's saying. If athletes discipline their bodies to win a, to win a wreath, he's talking about the, the little crowns they would get, which is basically a glorified piece of celery, right? Um, if athletes are willing to beat their bodies to get a piece of celery put around their head, surely we can run because our finish line is so much better. We have a crown that will not fade. We have a glory that will not go anywhere. Run for it. You have the freedom. Run for it. Run for the only finish line that matters. Deny yourself for the only cause that counts. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 9. How do we get there? How do we get to that, that place, to that kind of freedom? I love Heidelberg Catechism. This came out of um, Germany in the late uh, 1500s. The first question says this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also, as if that were not enough, He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation, good and bad, celebration and cancer. All things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's just a summary statement of what it means to be free and how we run in that freedom. Would you know that true freedom? That allows you to actually lay everything down for the sake of your Savior. Come to Jesus. Trust in Him. 
Everything that can be lost will be lost. Come and find life in the One who will never let you go. Let's pray. Lord, we love our freedom. May it be that we love You more. That we would love the true freedom that You give. Where we know in our heart of hearts that we have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove, and nothing to fear. May we be set free to revel and enjoy You in that freedom. And to run with the abandon that Paul talks about. To be able to lay down our rights when necessary, whatever we perceive those rights to be, for the good of our brothers and sisters, for the possibility of winning our neighbor. May we be willing to sacrifice our comfort so that someone else may know You. Maybe we be willing to sacrifice our time so that someone else may come to know You. May we be willing to sacrifice our treasure so that someone else will come to know You. And Lord, as we move to the communion table, we pray that as we eat, And as we drink, that you would remind us of your sacrifice. That you would remind us of what you have accomplished for us on our behalf. The freedom that we have because of your body given. The freedom that we have because of your blood poured. Because of the sacrifice made. May this be the place where we find our identity and our joy and our peace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask the elders to come forward as we prepare the table, as we prepare for communion. When we gather for communion, we just want to say a couple of quick things. The first thing we would say is that this is not uh, the table of Grace Fellowship. It's not... Uh, the table simply of our denomination. It is the Lord Jesus' table, and all who belong to Jesus are welcome at the table. But the converse of that is also true, that if you do not yet belong to Jesus, so if you have uh, young children, parents who haven't professed faith in the Lord, who haven't been baptized, Lord, uh, if you have... Uh, if You're here this morning, you're not a child, but you haven't yet believed, you're still wrestling with what the gospel means, that's okay. We would ask that you not take part in the supper. Uh, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians that if we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus without discerning it, without understanding what we're doing, that we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And we would spare you that. But for those who need encouragement, for those battling sin and pleading with the Lord to rip it out of their lives, for those who need strength in the gospel, for those who need to experience Jesus afresh, come to the table. It's open for you. On the night in which He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and having broke it, He gave thanks. 
And he said to his disciples, This is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. Much like you would at a family supper. If uh, you'll just hold on to each one of the elements and then we take them all together.